Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. Are you telling me that you built a time machine? What about the land? Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I want my MTV. Twenty-one years. Rediscovery of the years 1980-2001. With your host, Sam Williams. Hello, pop culture vultures. Welcome to 21 Years. I'm your host, El Dangeroso. Please don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, Pandora, and everywhere else podcasts are distributed. Here we explore the stories behind the stories on news, music, movies, TVs, and products from the 80s and 90s. So tonight's episode is going to bring back some fond memories, but it's also going to be kind of sad because we answered the popular Generation X question, what happened to record stores? Now you may say that's easy, it's Napster, but it's actually not that simple. And in reality, though it did hurt the industry, ultimately Napster was a blip on the radar compared to digital music. And in reality, record stores could have survived it, honestly. So no, Napster alone didn't end record stores, but we got to ask the question, what did? I remember growing up, you know, my family was really religious and went to church close to a large mall. And every Sunday after church, well, let's say as church went really late, we usually didn't eat lunch until really, really closer to one o'clock, which was, if you're from the South, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, But every Sunday after church, we went and ate at a place called Bonanza, which was a steakhouse attached to a two-story mall. It was a highlight of my week because after lunch, my parents almost always went to Sears or JCPenney, which allowed me free roam of the colossal two-story mall. I could walk over to KB Toys to check out the new Sega Master System. Yes, I had a Sega before the Nintendo. And the main reason I made that bad decision to ask for a Sega Master System for Christmas in 1986 was because my favorite arcade games were all Sega games. You know, Outrun, Afterburner, uh, Shinobi... Choplifter, just to name a few. I was 10 years old, and despite friends teasing me about making the wrong decision on video game consoles versus the Nintendo Entertainment System, I was fully ready to die on the hill that Sega was the best gaming console ever made. But finally, I had to cave when I requested a Nintendo Entertainment System for the El Dangeroso Estate Christmas of 1987. Mike Tyson's Punch-Out was a part of many sleepovers at friends' house. Well, that and Kung Fu Master, which my friend Ryan and I stayed up into the wee hours of the night, playing while listening to Bon Jovi Slippery When Wet and drinking Jolt Cola. Needless to say, Ryan's parents were pretty much the coolest ever. But I digress. After KB Toys, it was on to Babbage's to look at the covers of PC video games. I say covers because we didn't really get a computer until like 1990. And even when we did, my parents were too cheap for AOL. They would remain skeptical of the internet and didn't want to make a huge investment, so they opted to save $5 a month with Prodigy, 
an online service which worked half the time and was knocked offline every time the wind changed directions. As a kid, it was intoxicating to see some of the elaborate artwork on the covers of these games. Uh, War games, flight simulators, racing simulators, even a porn game called Leisure Suit Larry. A game in which you followed a character named Larry through a variety of escapades to convince attractive women to sleep with you. It was a pretty awesome game from the looks of it. I don't know how much fun it was to actually play it, but I imagine there was some nudity, sexual innuendo, everything that a kid my age was really kind of into. And then after Babbage's, it was on to Spencer's Gifts to get cheap thrills from the dirty adult birthday cards and Playboy posters on display inside. Imagine a 10-year-old El Dangeroso getting virtually all of his sex miseducation, not from his conservative parents, but from Spencer's Gifts. I'm sure it was hilarious watching me casually flip through the posters of wet t-shirted, big-breasted women from the pages of Playboy and trying to stay calm like, nothing to see here, Spencer's employee. Just keep staring out at the people walking by soullessly as you nurse your hangover. But I always save the best store for last, Camelot Records. Why was Camelot, or for that matter, any record store my favorite? Well, it's kind of because at the time in 1987, a kid from a conservative family was being pulled in a tug-of-war between church-going Southern parents and the satanic panic of the 80s, a topic which we will most certainly be exploring in an episode of 21 years very soon. Preachers were telling parents that the Satanists had taken over the record industry and were now pushing devil music on young kids to brainwash them. And we can thank Ozzy Osbourne for most of that commotion. Ozzy liked to decorate his albums in upside-down crosses, fake blood, and horror themes, not to mention the rumors and news stories that exaggerated what parents saw their kids watching on MTV. The record stores were posting promotional items all over their establishment, piquing the interest of young people just like me to venture in and sell their soul to rock and roll. But it wasn't just Ozzy. Motley Crue posed in ripped leather, fake blood, and pentagrams on fire. Twisted Sister pretended to chew on human bones as cannibals while remaining the most unattractive human beings to ever wear makeup products. And then there was Wasp. Yeah, the same Wasp we were told stood for We Are Satan's People, which actually stood for We Are Sexual Perverts. Add in Iron Maiden's Eddie all over the back walls of Camelot depicting revelations and number of the beast, and you have a shrine to all things conservative parents warned you to run away from. The youth of the 80s were looking for a peaceful rebellion. Something that made their parents concerned for attention, while also making efforts to live up to expectations. Heavy metal music was a huge part of that mini-rebellion. The fact we were told we shouldn't listen to it and that it upset our elders only pulled us towards the forbidden fruit even more. Record stores were doing well by the late 80s, but it wasn't always that way. In fact, record stores began to really suffer in the early 80s through 80 and 82 because the record industry was seriously down and layoffs were abundant because of low sales. Smaller record stores consolidated or sold to larger entities for pennies on the dollar. Fortunately, an event happened in December of 1982 that turned things around. Michael Jackson released Thriller. The album to this day is still the highest selling record of all time. Guinness places the number of albums sold at 66 million globally, and its release single-handedly saved the record business. 33 million records were sold by the end of 1983. Thriller gave record stores and the record business a serious booster shot in the arm. Soon everybody was going to the record store to buy Thriller and its singles. The Girl Is Mine, Billie Jean, Pretty Young Thing, Want to Be Starting Something, Human Nature, Beat It, and of course Thriller were hits that consumers were clamoring for. In other words, Michael Jackson's Thriller saved the music industry from an extreme low point and the ripples of fortune were still being felt in record stores around the world. I remember 
when I first heard Thriller, and I think a lot of people remember it. Um, I had gotten a red transistor radio for either my birthday or Christmas. I don't remember, but I remember, I do remember uh, laying in bed and lights out, bedtime, El Dangeroso, go to sleep. And I remember turning on that red transistor radio and scanning stations. I remember hearing Thriller for the first time in that moment. It completely, I don't know, it, it, Thriller was a, we- was a weird, weird song in the fact that it was a great song but it also had these creepy undertones which almost made you even more attracted to it like the 80s it's hard to describe and we're gonna we're gonna dig into this but there was a period of of satanic and horror overtones in the 80s which brought about the satanic panic and and all of these things um books were written about cults the occult and satanic uh rituals and occult members and devil worshipers and movies were a lot about that. And the music reflected that it was a really weird time for kind of a horror satanic thing. And it's, it's, it's really, it's a really interesting thing we're going to dive into soon. Um, But thriller had a lot of those elements. And I just remember hearing that as a very young kid actually had bunk beds. I had no brother or sister near my age. My sister was a lot older than me. Uh, but I still had bunk beds. And to this day, I have to ask my parents sometime why I had bunk beds when there was no other <laughs> children. But I always slept on the top bunk because I didn't have to find anybody for it. Um, but I remember laying in that top bunk and, and listening to that red transistor radio and Thriller coming on. And, and it absolutely just thrilled me. I, it was a whole nother type of song I've never heard before. It had these great undertones, you know, wolves howling and the beat and... The whole uh, uh, like energy of the song was very, very scary. And I don't know. I just remember that really making a huge, huge impact on me. So Thriller, in a, in a sense, changed so much, not only for the record stores, but also, you know, those who were listening and the young adults that were, you know, listening for something and looking for something different. And they definitely got it through Thriller. But buying music because of Thriller will once again become a very personal experience. And after the shot in the arm that Thriller provided, major record labels and companies began to notice the growing popularity of record shops and decided to capitalize on the business venture. This meant that privately owned mom and pop shops diminished significantly as stores like Velvet Music, Tower Records, Sam Goody, and others took over the domain. This may have been an underlying reason for the increased popularity of record shops in the late 90s, too. But then we get to a new platform of music in the form of CDs. Now, you didn't have to fast forward a tape, rewind a tape, then fast forward the tape again to try to catch the beginning of a particular song on your Walkman. You now had a disc that songs were numbered on. And if you wanted to hear Striper is always there for you, that was easy. You just click the arrow until track two and you got the song without delay on demand. Though CD players at the time cost hundreds of dollars and up to a thousand, competition quickly cut the cost in half. CDs themselves sold for about $17 at the time, which is the same as about $40 in today's money. The advantages outweighed the cost. The CD was portable, easy to store, convenient to listen to, and had better sound quality over tapes. Anticipation was one of the biggest marketing tools of the record store era. Pre-internet music magazines largely fueled the excitement for upcoming releases, both via feature stories and through label ads teasing about forthcoming albums. Magazines like Spin and Rolling Stone began to promote and push the hype of future releases from artists that were popular at the time. 
All this had impeccable timing as music was beginning to change from the glam metal styles of Poison and Firehouse to more serious social wear music of the 90s. Bands like Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Bush, and Jane's Addiction were singing songs about troubled youth, addiction, and real life, all while hammering out rock riffs that were more mature. MTV rode the wave of the alternative music scene with shows like 120 Minutes and bands receiving free publicity on the popular show Beavis and Butthead. Not to mention the door, alternative music kicked open, lending itself to radio stations everywhere, having a resurgent of listenership. The music industry was on top of its game in the 90s, and with CDs, music publications, live tours, and MTV videos in rotation, everything was looking up and very profitable. I'm sure you're saying, okay, but when did all this really fall apart? Well, before you say it, Yes, Napster did play its part, but Napster was only really active for one year. Yeah, it's true, I swear. Napster only operated from June 2001 until September 2002. Yes, it did siphon money and open up a new way to steal artistic creation. It hardly put that large of a dagger through the heart of a record store, though. And although we will do bonus episodes as our podcast grows on many of the topics mentioned here in more detail... We'll just say that Napster, for all of its disruption and news attention, was shut down relatively quickly. So no, it really wasn't Napster itself that ended record stores, but the concept of Napster that ended record stores. Let me explain. Napster did allow people to download singles. Singles are what record sales were first and foremost built on. People really didn't buy entire albums until Thriller came out. People bought singles, and they bought many singles at affordable prices in comparison to the full album. Even as far back as the beginning of the record industry, singles were sold, not really full albums. Consumers simply didn't want to waste money on an entire album when they could just buy the single for a fraction of the cost. After Thriller, companies saw gold in record sales again, but they saw an opportunity in forcing consumers to buy full records for more money. They no longer saw the value in a dollar single. Everything was now geared towards getting the $17 for the entire CD. It made a lot of business sense to the record companies and stores. Sell 1 million albums at $17 versus selling 2 million singles at $1. See, what Napster did was wave a warning flag. Consumers did and always will desire singles over albums. It's in our nature. Buy directly what we want cheaper to sample what we might want to buy later for more. Even in 2021, this all remains to be very, very true and very relevant. Record companies and subsequently record stores ignored the glaring issue Napster showed them. Once Napster was shut down, stores and companies then went on trying to force an entire album down the consumer's throat. Things began to slip and record stores tried to introduce listening stations for CDs so that consumers could hear the album before buying it. But that solution really didn't satisfy the fix. All it did was justify to many consumers that they preferred to own one song they heard on the radio versus buying the entire album. And I remember like going to Blockbuster at this time, Blockbuster Music, and they had listening stations and they would they would let you listen to any CD at all. You know, they would just open and they usually had like one copy of every CD that was out and you would sit at the listening booth, ask them to put something in uh, to the player. They would put it in, you'd listen in, and it had like, I don't know if you guys remember, but it had like a skip button and a volume button. So you could skip forward, skip back, play, I think pause and turn it up or down. Um, and it was like this little like push button display that wasn't even like, it was just like bubble buttons. <laughs> it wasn't even like digital or anything like that. It was just bubble buttons that you would just click, 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 click. And man, there's a lot of records I listened to on that thing. I was like, man, I'm so glad I didn't spend the money on this album. 
Um, but there's a lot of records too that I did that. And I was like, man, I've got to buy this because it's incredible. Yeah, there's there's a time where you could go in and just listen to CD and it kind of almost validated the fact you didn't want to buy it, <laughs> which was kind of, I think, um, the opposite effect that music stores were, were looking for on those uh, listening booths. Okay, sure. Maybe there was three great songs on that album, but why not just buy the three songs on a single and just skip paying the $17 for a CD? Because the recording industry got greedy, they failed to follow their past map to success. And after Napster, soon to follow was a platform that still exists all these years later. Yes, you can have the single now, and it's still just a dollar, just like it was 30 years ago. But it all came with a price. With the defeat of Napster, other platforms rushed in to sell digital singles with a large amount of success. Record stores began to shut down as digital singles became the best way to buy music for the consumer. In a very ironic twist, Napster could have actually saved the record industry. Had those in charge recognized that Napster's system in its simplest form weren't giving away actual albums, just singles, and they could have adjusted their products to do just the same. Just go back to selling the singles. It's obvious what people wanted to do in the first place. Record stores begin to fade and be non-existent by the early 2000s as they shut down their physical doors while taking losses to the new digital era of music. The sad part of all this? Apple, for one, makes little to no money on music downloads. 60% is paid to the artist, and the rest is paid to taxes and operation expenses. Their plan is pretty simple. Sell music cheap, give the user a platform, a device to listen to it, and they'll be committed for fear of losing all their songs they have if they ever leave. It's really kind of a tragedy. Bands no longer make the kind of money now that they were making back then, which, which is why tiring touring is a necessary evil. It's also why the price of tickets to see your favorite artists have jumped extremely high. The tragedy for the fan is the loss of physically having a connection to the music you bought, the ability to hold it in your hand, the anticipation of opening a package, smelling the new plastic, and the ritual of feeding the tape or CD into your player for the first time. It bridged a gap between the artist and fan. You could read the liner notes and thank yous and read the lyrics, even see pictures of your favorite group you hadn't seen before. It was sort of a spiritual connection you experienced in your car, with your CD Walkman, or home stereo in your room. The idea of owning the physical art is now a lost tradition. Girls in the 50s swooned over Elvis' singles. The 60s eagerly awaited releases from the Beatles. And in 1984, Little El Dangeroso saw an album on the wall with a smoking angel baby on the cover. It was cool. I bought it, and when I asked the clerk, is this any good, his response was, Van Halen? Yeah, they're awesome. See, above all else, music connects people, and record stores were our place to worship. People at stores and talked to strangers about bands and albums they enjoyed. It opened the doors for connections, not just with artists, but with each other. The record store clerks began to recognize your taste and would recommend other albums to you. Other fans began to suggest their own favorite bands to you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate the advice of record store clerks. Physical and store promotions and other music fans that suggested albums like Siamese Dream or Nevermind or Plush, Tin, Blood Sugar Sex Magic or even Shout at the Devil to me. I will forever be grateful for the experience we shared. Even if it was for a few short minutes as I try to decide where to spend the $20 I made mowing lawns on a Saturday. I think if the record industry saw the warning Napster was waving in their face, we probably still have some form of record store still. Instead, they saw Napster as a disruption, one that was taking profits. Once defeated, the record industry danced in celebration and went back to trying to take the entire cake again, and they failed to see the appeal of singles still had on consumers. Sometimes a step back and an evaluate what you perceive as your enemy was actually salvation in disguise.
I miss record stores, and I think you probably do too. So lift your Surge Neon Green Extra Caffeinated Soda and salute your own memories in great stores like Tower Records, Camelot Music, Turtle Records, Coconuts, Sam Goody's, Tape World, Record Bar, Warehouse Music, Blockbuster Music, and Music Plus. Rest in peace. May you be in our hearts forever. I can honestly say I do miss record stores tremendously. I, I There's so many things that I've bought at a record store and so many experiences I've had at a record store. I remember even at the point where they started selling used CDs, um, you know, like a CD recycle type of thing. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, instead of buying the new album, you could go into one of these CD, you know, recycling stores and buy somebody's old CD they didn't want anymore. Of course, they didn't give you anything for them. I don't know if you guys remember that, but, you know, I had a friend that had a catalog of CDs. I mean, every band you can imagine, you know, live CDs, you know, rare CDs, all that stuff. And I remember going with him into a lot of those places to try to sell them. And they would give them like, you know, pennies on the dollar. But, you know, it was just record stores of all types were just such a big deal. And they were so much fun to be in. And I miss them tremendously because I'm a firm believer that all of these things in the 80s and 90s made us better people in the way that we interacted with each other. Clothing stores were clothing stores. You went to the clothing store to buy clothing. You went to a record store to buy records. You went to the arcade to play games. Nothing was all-encompassing, and nothing was a button push away to be delivered to your front door. And I know that sounds like an okay boomer, but it, it just feels like we've lost a lot of our connection. And I think even sometimes being in a store with other people or finding that human energy of interaction is really, really important to the soul. And so I think the record store was a really big deal for a lot of us. And I didn't ever think it would go away and tremendously sad to see that it has happened and that people are just not interested really owning physical art anymore. Uh, Everything is so digital. It's just really strange to me um, that people will just collect things digitally and not really have them in their hands. And that's a very sad situation to me, especially physical music, the ability to hold it, put in a CD player. And, you know, listen, MP3s are convenient. Downloads are convenient. Uh, I have them. I'm not going to say I don't. I've got Amazon Music, uh, which I pay $5 a month for. And sometimes I feel very guilty about that. I feel very guilty having Amazon Music because it's a very cheap price for me to pay to listen to whatever I want to listen to. But finding the CDs for some of these musicians and some of these bands and, and whatnot would be almost impossible today. So it's almost like you're forced to do it. And I know people that do music, not on the scale of U2, <laughs> uh, that band from, is that, is that the band from Scranton, Pennsylvania? Uh, no, uh, like U2 or anything like that. But I do know small artists and really now they're getting paid very little for their creation and for their art. Um, A lot of these people have to go on and raise money and beg fans for money just to be able to make an album. And uh, once they release that album and Pandora picks it up or Amazon or whoever, I just, you know, I've heard heard that they're getting paid pennies on the dollar. I mean, a thousand plays on Pandora, you know, is like $3. I mean, it's it's really a shame. And I'm, you know, I said 60% of what iTunes sells to the artists, but I'm sure that there's individual contracts in that that matter a tremendous amount, uh, especially if a large artist probably demands more money. But 
a lot of the smaller bands and smaller artists don't have that ability to demand more and they don't have that kind of publishing uh, where they're getting paid a lot of money. So touring and all this is a big deal. Uh, And, you know, you can notice it in your ticket sales when you go see somebody. I mean, a ticket now, you know, is easily 50 bucks. I mean, these are bands that I remember seeing. And I know that time changes and inflation and money, money values change, but I remember seeing bands for, you know, $25, you know, 30 bucks. And now you're talking 50, 75, $100. And these artists simply have to charge that to even make a living anymore. A living that they enjoy, I'm sure. <laughs> but a lifestyle nonetheless that they that they have probably come accustomed to. A lot of bands now are touring back to back, you know, 365 because they just have to maintain a lifestyle that they've already been committed to. But it's a sad time not being able to own physical music anymore. In many ways, it's great. In many ways, it's bad. Like I said, I've got Amazon Music. It's $5 a month. And I can't imagine with all the music I listen to on Amazon Music, what that $5 divided up between all these bands really pays them. I mean, I'm, I'm paying $5 a month to listen to any band I want at any point. And whether it's Rat or Van Halen or Queensryche or whoever, or even newer stuff, um, I'm hip still. Don't worry. I still got it. But I'm trying to keep everything's 80s, 90s references. But, you know, I, I might go through a phase where I'm listening to a lot of Rat albums or I'm listening to a lot of Metallica albums or whatever. And all I can think about is like, my God, you know, I feel terrible, but there's no other way to do this really because my $5 is being split up in what way? In what way is this making anyone com- living a comfortable life from this $5 a month I'm paying to listen to all this music? How is this even divided up? It can't be. It's pennies. It's pennies. And it's very sad, very sad to think about. And a lot of these people were wealthy in the 90s and 80s and early 2000s. But a lot of artists didn't go through that period. And they're trying to start off and they're trying to get paid. And it's, it's just, I mean, I can't imagine what the split of my $5 does for bands that are struggling right now and how much they get paid off of that. It's got to be minimal. But it's just a really different time, and we've discussed that as Generation Xers. We've seen it change, and we've got one foot in digital world and one foot in the old school world. Some of us probably still have a book of CDs we don't want to get rid of. One day they'll come back, but it's, it's a sad time. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed it. I enjoyed doing this and researching it for you. I thought it was a really interesting kind of uh, story to tell. So I hope you guys will subscribe. I hope you continue to listen. I hope you continue to be a part of this. Listen, uh, please send me any emails you want to through uh, Podbean. Uh, and let me know if you've got a subject you want me to do. I'll be happy to do it. Uh, don't forget to check out some of the um, Facebook pages that I hang out on. That's a great place to uh, discuss the 80s and 90s. It's a lot of fun. There's a lot of people posting things about the 80s and 90s. I think you'll get a kick out of it. So please... Um, Please go visit uh, our friends that uh, do Forever 1980s, 80s Life, 1980s Child, and please, the big one, uh, the Ultimate 80s Page. So go be a part of those communities. Talk about the 80s and 90s. You'll have a lot of fun. They post a lot of things if you're on Facebook. Uh, follow us on Twitter, 21 Years Podcast. It, it always helps us boost. So please subscribe. Please continue to download. Please keep being a part of this community because it's a lot of fun and I really want to build it up and we'll do some really fun things as we go. I still want to do something on Waco, Texas. I still want to do um, 
the Karate Kid. I got a Karate Kid special. I've got a gangster rap special I'm going to be putting together. And, you know, I'm going to do a little bit more on movies as well. Uh, so some of our most favorite movies from the 80s and 90s we're going to do something with. I'm really kind of looking for, again, stories behind the stories. I mean, I can sit here and tell you about Ferris Bueller's Day Off, but you already know everything about Ferris Bueller's Day Off, or you would have already heard it by now. So I got to be really selective about finding something where you're going to say, wow, you know, that's really cool. I didn't I didn't know that all this went down. So the movies are a little bit tougher because there's so many out there, and you kind of have to find things that people haven't heard before to, to make it more interesting for you. But... Um, Oh, I want to do a Satanic Panic episode. It's, you know, listen, we're going to we're gonna attack so much stuff here. It's going to be fun. Uh, so hang in there. Subscribe. Share. Tell people about me. i really appreciate it if you would. Uh, direct people my way so that they can listen and be a part of it too. I hope your kids are listening and they're enjoying it, having a good time. And again, any ideas, please shoot them my way. I'd be happy to do it. You can find me on Podbean. Podbean, 21 years. I had to spell it out. I couldn't use the numbers. So it's 21 years uh, podcast. And uh, on Podbean or, you know, hit me up on Twitter or something. Send me a message. So you got an idea? I want to hear it. I would love to do something more on toys. I'd love to do something more on music and albums. So things like that are going to be things I'm really, really looking on the lookout for. So please do that. Again, thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a wonderful week. We'll see you next week with a whole new topic that you'll, I'm sure, be on pins and needles for. Thanks, everybody. This is 21 Years. I'm El Dangeroso. Have a great week. Bye-bye.